0: Hello there, I'm Dennis, and this is Sheffield Valley, a show about Sheffield Startups. This podcast was created to bring Sheffield's entrepreneurs, investors, startup supporters to everyone's attention and increase the connectedness in our region. It also aims to inspire more people in our city to become entrepreneurs, seeing that there are successful role models to follow. Before we move on to some news, I wanted to make a couple of quick announcements. First, I wanted to remind you about the upcoming startup meetups in South Yorkshire. The startup meetups are in informal networking events for anyone interested in the high-growth businesses region-wide. And when I say region-wide, I mean it. We have meetups coming in Sheffield, that is next Tuesday, the February 22nd, Roderum next Thursday, February 24th, Doncaster on March the 1st and Barnsley on March 10th. There's links to get your free tickets for any of the events in the show's notes, plus more information about the venues for all four meetups. Then I also wanted to announce that Startup Weekend is officially back in Sheffield for another edition. It's the 10 year anniversary for Startup Weekends in Sheffield, that's 10 years of the world's most popular entrepreneurial event in our city, and we can't wait to organize another memorable weekend with many great startups being created and everyone having time, full of learnings and fun. Tickets are not live yet but once they are I will announce it here and there will be a discount code for all listeners to get a reduced ticket price. If you don't know what a Startup Weekend is, I will leave a link in the show's notes to learn more about it and consider coming to the Sheffield one. And last but not least, from next week, Shi Valley will feature TransformSY cohort members. For those of you unaware, TransformSY is the accelerator I started working on by joining Entrepreneurial Spike. I've had Mike Stephens, CEO of Eastpark and my boss on the podcast discussing our program. Link is in the show's notes if you want to listen to that one. But yeah, we are now in the second month of the program with the first cohort, and I couldn't wait to start getting those exciting people on Sheev Valley. The first episode will be with the head of business development for an IoT cybersecurity startup, IOTech, for which you can read in Wise newest newsletter. I will share a link in the show's notes. They are looking to revolutionize the way data is stored and secured for resource-constrained devices. Make sure you subscribe to Sheev Valley to not miss the episodes. It's really important and it's really entertaining as well. And now it's time for global news, this week I will briefly talk about cryptocurrency. Crypto is in a very weird stage of its development. On one side, the whole crypto portfolio decreased massively. In the first few weeks of 2022, there's been more public outreach about the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining than ever before, and some countries are openly contemplating serious crypto regulations that could potentially cause another stagnation of the market. But on the other side, crypto seems to have made its way to the mainstream. Crypto companies occupy the advertising spaces of sports teams, jerseys, and arenas. NFTs are everywhere, and there is hardly a celebrity without an NFT Twitter profile photo. And there's now countries that recognize Bitcoin as a legal tender, El Salvador, I think, was the first one that did that. And now, the Super Bowl, the annual biggest sports event in the US whose half-time advertising break probably draws as many people to the TV sets as the sport itself, was filled with crypto ads. Described as an attempt from crypto companies to sell the Web 3.0 to the mass audience, what I saw was a sort of a new dot-com bubble, and not because I don't see the potential in crypto, on the contrary, I consider Ethereum to be a revolutionary technology that can have real-world positive impact. But at the same time, the current push of crypto in the mainstream to me is unsustainable and ill-productive. People are being told about these new shiny opportunities to make money rather than being sold the concept and philosophy behind cryptocurrency and no one talks about the risks neither. Only 3 weeks ago the football fan token app Iconic filed for liquidation although as the price of its token decreased and the company found itself absolvent, unable to pay the 6 and 7 figure contract it signed with major sports teams and leagues. As I said, I'm not anti-crypto. I have made my investments and I'm interested in the field due to the innovation potential but the current direction of the crypto technology towards commercialization capturing people's interests for easy money making and ambiguous nft applications is not the one that will bring the most rewards for us all the local news this week is about mina and if you haven't heard of mina then you most likely don't drive an electric vehicle or don't work in the ev industry I'm only saying this because Mina is very established in their industry. They have a number of award-winning solutions for EV charging, both for small businesses and fleets, and integrates with, with home and work charging points throughout the United Kingdom to accurately capture energy costs. It says it's the most accurate uh, accurate system to use for capturing energy costs. Last week, Fleetcore, which is a global leader in business payments, made a further investment in Mina, thus solidifying its support in the EV startup and ensuring it has the resources to continue developing their services and scale the company faster. Fleetcore has already integrated Mina's solution into a couple other solutions they offer in the UK, and the move is very exciting for Ashley Tate, co founder and CEO of Mina. Congratulations to the whole team, and hopefully, I'll be able to get Ashley to speak on Sheep Valley because Mina's story is definitely one worth telling. Now it's time to move on to the main event today, my conversation with Patrick Speedy from IMPART. Before we start, I wanted to mention that Patrick and I was supposed to speak together as early as last November, but then we had to keep pushing it forward because he and his company were in the process of acquisition, which materialized in the end of December and is now a fact. IMPART was officially acquired and Patrick shares a lot of details about the acquisition and the future of his company and himself. Plus, he also uncovers the history of Impart and how did they get to this stage. Enjoy our conversation. So I'm here today with Patrick Speedy from Impart. Hi, Patrick. How are you today?
1: Hey, doing very well, thank you. Yeah, not too bad at all. Not too bad at all.
0: Great. Well, we've had this podcast in the in the books for a while, and uh, and I'm just really excited. But before talking about IMPART, I want to learn more about you as a, as a person and as a professional, what, what led to IMPART. So could you tell us a little bit more about your career prior to becoming a founder?
1: Yeah, sure, sure. So where to start? So my academic background, I guess, is in law. So I've done an undergraduate degree in law, which isn't particularly interesting if you want to sit down and read legal books and that sort of thing i got got bored of that quite quickly. I worked for a short period of time at a solicitor's as like a, what's called a litigation executive um, doing medical negligence claims and working on medical negligence claims and uh, personal injury claims and that sort of thing and got bored of that quite quickly. And then I, I went to work in London for a publishing company. When you work for a publishing company, it's basically sales, right? You're either selling your books so people are coming and writing it or you're trying to sell your books so people um, buy it or advertising that sort of thing. And that was a really good sort of formative experience. That was kind of, I don't know, twenty. Two to twenty-three or something like that. I took a I did quite well at that, and then took a break and went travelling for six and a half months. I did a I don't know round the world trip, but I took a fairly unconventional route through to. Moscow in January as my first trip and, and took the train to Mongolia. so I didn't wow. do the, the typical backpackers, uh backpackers trip. But that was really good. I had a bit of time out, and then I went back to work for the company i worked at before then in London, publishing again. So I did another couple of years there. And uh, and I'd kind of got 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 bored of that at that at that time. And I was trying to think about the next thing I was going to do. And I had some conversations with a friend of mine, Robin, who, who will turn out to be my co-founder, who would turn out to be my co-founder. I've known a long time since school, I'm chatting about the, the basic concept, of what import was going to be. It kind of, we're formalizing it ahead. And I also wanted to do a master's. So to me, it was a good opportunity to go and do um, something that didn't kind of give me a gap in my CV, but gave me a bit more time, uh, not doing a full-time job. So that's when I moved to Sheffield and uh, I did a master's, which again was kind of focused on law. So it was biotechnology, law and ethics, It's kind of niche, but I'm focused in a lot about intellectual property, ethics, patents, and the ethics of patents, that, that, that sort of thing. There's some weird stuff about transhumanism and, and stuff as well, which was quite interesting and part of that also gave me the impetus to go knock on the doors around the university to ask about my business idea and what people thought of it and and speak to the enterprise center i'm sure we'll come on to talk about that in a bit more detail so i got this kind of concept of what impart was but it was on scribbled notes on phones and and big bits of paper and and that sort of thing so doing the masters kind of gave me the impetus to go and take some time out and knock on a few doors actually inside a university while studying at the university and that was really good and then yeah so from then I worked for a children's charity for a while, doing their marketing and communications, and that was like a three-day week working remotely, and that gave me enough time to sort of work on my the business concept, same as you know just about being able to pay my rent at the time. And then from 2014 or the end of 2013 is when we raised our first investment. And then from there, it's been sort of in part from that time. So, yeah, I'm born in uh, Derbyshire, so not too far away. I've had, I was actually born in Sheffield, but grew up in Derbyshire from when I was. And, uh, and yeah, been in Sheffield since, gosh, I don't know, 2012 or something like that. So, been a decade. so, yeah, I was born in Sheffield, but not not bred in Sheffield, I guess, but uh, but grew up fairly locally.
0: Yeah. And I mean, uh, I I think that's one of the most um, valuable things that you can do for, for the city that you were born with. Is to get out of there, go around, get as much as experience as you can from all different places. Uh, as you went to work in London, I'm actually curious to hear more about your experience in Moscow. I've never been to Russia, but I'm fascinated by by Russian culture in particular. So I just yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear what what your impressions were.
1: Yeah, well, it was it was it was minus 25 and about <laughs> two foot of snow outside when I landed in Moscow, and I was wondering what the hell I'd done to to, to go there. You know, as my first port of call as. A, it was a travelling trip. It was super interesting, like the history, the the, the culture, you know, so I got time to go around some of the museums there, learn a little bit about the uh royal family and, and that sort of thing. But I, I didn't have too long there, so I had maybe just less than a week, I think in moscow and and met a really cool guy who was like a a student a music student who took us around and and showed us a few different places that i wouldn't have found otherwise so he was really sound really really nice i didn't find moscow or or russian people particularly welcoming at the time you know if you go other places in the world i don't know it's a cultural thing like i don't know like they don't speak english and um yeah difficult to navigate around the city a little bit on the underground that was an interesting experience but i i just think the yeah the city and the culture was 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 super interesting and um you know the history and everything else yeah and then i took the trans-siberian express from there to Lombato in mongolia and then down into beijing after that and that was an interesting that was definitely an interesting experience you go through like eight time zones um but the train stays on the same time. So you sort of get jet lag when she gets halfway along. It's kind of weird. But yeah, an awesome experience. A really cool way to, to see a lot of, a lot of Russia by the, by the train.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point about the, about the time zones because it's much different when you're turning through time zones in a plane and in a train. But anyways, I'm drifting off the topic. I, I want to jump into IMPART now because we, we kind of segwayed into it with you getting to the stage where you're working for, for the children's charity and you had time to think more about IMPART. So yeah, let's just expand on that. Why did you decide to start it and uh, what was what was your why?
1: Yeah, so so it, it was a bit of a mesh of experience, really. So the, the publishing company I used to work for in London used to do a variety of different... It's a legal publishing company. So used to do books around intellectual property and um, and trademarks and, and different things like that. And they had a supplement that, uh, that wasn't very big, to be honest, and didn't go particularly well, but it was on university commercialization. And they had a few different products, which were kind of... They were moving into more digital project products, which was interesting. And my co-founder, Rob, uh, I've known since we were in school. So uh, we've known each other since we were like 14, 15 and he was doing his PhD at King's College so I used to work at London Bridge he used to work at King's College and we used to you know frankly we used to meet up in the pub quite a lot and and chat about a variety of different things and he was talking about like trying to work with more companies trying to get the research out of the lab him and some of his um, uh, colleagues have been working on um, a different platform for for diabetes research and and that sort of thing which is which was you know we were chatting about really interested in and then I've been I've been at a conference through my my job in it's in Chicago huge biotechnology conference called bio and there's like 30 thousand people at this event and i'm in a conversation with like two academics and two people in a pharma company and one of them goes i'm looking for this molecule i can't find it anywhere and uh, the academics like well that's my last five years worth of work like we should definitely talk right and i'm there going well how do you guys normally connect you know there's thirty thousand people at this event serendipity surely isn't like the way or whatever and that conversation more about it and talk about his experience and and how they were doing it and you know the problem that actually yeah there is tons of this research that needs to get out into the world that people should be aware of but unless you publish it you don't find out about it or you know unless you patent it and so we came up with this sort of general mission statement which was helping universities get research out into the more more specifically helping universities connect with companies to allow research to get out into the world so the, the fundamentals of it is companies are the the, the medium through which universities can get their research out there. So you look at them and when you start to look at it, you look at some really obvious examples like Google was like a PhD project. Xerox came out of university research, penicillin, you know, and then more recently there's a big, Shining one, which is all the COVID research and, and, and the vaccine research, come out of universities. So there are some real big world examples, but obviously there are millions and millions of, of you know academics all around the world doing different bits of research. And we're like, there should be an easy way to do it, right? And then you start to look around see if, if there is already a way that's doing it. And there were some government initiatives that have sort of tried to do it before, but we we felt I think I can be as honest to say this we felt that they hadn't done it very well, and we felt there were some reasons where we could come up with a unique idea for it to work. And and that was as far as we got, I guess, with bits of paper. And then we started going to speak at people in the so I was at the University of Sheffield going to try and, you know, as a student there, asking for meetings with, you know, heads of departments and stuff to see if they'd meet with me and, and, and I could bend their ears. And Rob was doing a similar thing at King's College where he was studying as well. And starting to speak to them about it. And, you know, we did get some feedback, like it's been tried before, it doesn't work, it doesn't work because but all the reasonings they gave, like we didn't feel were were valid if we were going to do it properly, and the way we thought that we could do it. So I guess you like that as a, I don't know, a founder of a company. You sort of pet, petulant, don't believe in what everyone else says. You have to validate it yourself first, right? And then you speak to enough people who actually say, actually, this could be, a, this could be really interesting. You know, how how would it work in practice? And then you start to think about, okay, well, how the hell are we going to actually do it? Like, we didn't have any money or anything, you know. And 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 that's when we went to the, I, I went to the University Enterprise Centre at Sheffield. And said, "Look, we've got a business idea. How do I write a business plan? How do I do? You know, where do you start basically?" And, and got some really good advice there. And they had a scheme where you could you could apply for a thousand pounds worth of funding. You have to fill out an application. You had to you know go and present it to you know a team of people, and then they agreed to give you a thousand pounds. And that's where we we spent five hundred quid on the first website. We applied to a pitch competition, which cost two hundred pounds. Uh, we booked a night in a hotel. We bought some business cards and a pop up banner, and it was like nine hundred and you know ninety six pounds eighty or something like that. And that was the event where we met our first investor and everything. I think I'd, I'd always wanted to start a business. I'd had it in mind like that 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 was something that I wanted to do, but I wasn't like I wasn't like actively scribbling ideas down and thinking this could be. I wasn't you know proactively trying to push for a business idea at the time it just sort of I guess it came through a mesh of kind of experience and friendship and and conversations and then we sort of I guess kind of we got excited about it and and ran with it a little bit and and then yeah I guess that's how it that was the the why I guess if you want to call it that and I suppose we were like I don't know mid-20s you know I didn't have a mortgage you know didn't have children or anything like so 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 yeah it was it was a good time for me in my life as well I guess to to give it a whirl
0: yeah. And I love what you said about uh, want, having wanted to start a business, but didn't proactively look for ideas and you waited for something to be to be bothering you enough to, to to form a business around it. This is what Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, said. And it, I remember it stayed with me when I heard that, that phrase, because I, I also have a, a bit of an ambition to start my own business. But then at the time, I remember I was just really trying to scrap an idea just so I can start it. But then realistically, you just need to wait for something that really opens up as an opportunity. And it's really a big enough problem that you want to focus your, all of your time to, to solve it. So, mm. I mean, I think that's part of the reason probably why you're successful. And I'm really interested to also hear more about the, the how. So you, you said that when you were starting to have this conversation, it's, it, is, it is a big it is a big topic and it is a big problem. Because university research and then industry R&D, these are massive, massive industries and I'm just curious to hear, like, how exactly do you forge this connection? And what are the benefits for both sides?
1: Yeah. So um, the how, yeah. So it's, I don't know, there's lots and lots of steps you take to, you know, and, and the, and the you know, you take the very first one, right? So we did the, what we did was Rob and I identified an event that was happening where it was like 300 pounds to attend. And there were lots of industry R&D professionals going there. It was like a speed dating event for the <laughs> universities, um, and companies and like there were like there was 10 tables with different people that were like leaders in R&D and all the universities kind of would queue up and hand their business cards and say hey we'd like to talk to you and it was, it was quite a good good event hosted by uh, an organization we know now really well called, called it used to be called Practice Unica now Practice Oral and that worked really well so we went we paid to go to this event so Rob and I chipped in like 150 pounds each which was a lot of money for us at the time and like went there and literally just you know, met every single company. We've got this idea. We're going to set up a platform. You know, we'd love you to be part of it. It's not going to cost you anything. They're going to re- you know, register for free. Would you mind if I sent you some more information, had a conversation, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we met like 10 or 15 people who worked in relevant roles in companies at this event. And we set up like a MailChimp email list. And then, you know, through the meetings I'd done at Sheffield, Rob had done at KCA. We'd, we'd got a couple of contacts in universities that we felt we could kind of like run a, a very basic pilot, which was basically an email list and we'll send it to people in companies and see if they're interested in the stuff that they send. And then the idea was that we track the analytics and and see who opened what. And the, the ultimate idea was that we we you know part of the value proposition would be to introduce them to relevant people in companies and provide some analytics on or some feedback on you know, quali- quantitative and qualitative feedback on on how they interact with with people in in, in com- how that how people in companies interact with their their research, I guess. So we sort of put this like basic list together, and then the the thousand uh, pounds grant I mentioned we applied to this uh, pitch competition called Venture Fest. And if you're familiar with it, I don't even know if it's still happening anymore, but it used to it used to be one one in york and one in bristol and and you had to write a business plan and rob and i was you know we're still busy doing other things we're like right we have a deadline let's write a business plan let's apply to this competition like we probably won't get shortlisted but you know hey let's let's send it in and we send it in and we got shortlisted so six companies pitched at this event and we literally had like a Business cards and a PowerPoint presentation, and some completely ridiculous numbers that we put in there of how much money we were going to make in like the first three, five years or something. Um, but it was run by the Yorkshire Association of Business Angels. This pitch competition, and at that event there were various people exhibiting. One was the University of York. We met some people from the University of Bradford there as well, and they heard us give our pitch, and they were like, "Oh, this is really interesting. You know, we'd love to be involved because we mentioned that we were running a pilot." So we, I think, we cobbled together, I think, five universities to send us some. Frankly, stuff I think they've got, you know, lying around in the, in the, probably not in the top drawer, in the bottom drawer, you know, to test the, the, the the I guess, the concept that we were talking about. And then also at this event, we met a business angel who was an ex-academic who grilled me on the stand, like mega grilled me on the stand. But in a, in a good way, you know, was like, I've done this before. I know that this is a problem. How are you going to make it work? How have you considered all these different things, et cetera, et cetera. And then we met with him after and we then ran this pilot for like six or eight weeks, and I think we connected like Something like one in four or two in five of the opportunities that were sent to us by universities with someone in a company to start a conversation, and the university got quite excited about quite excited about that. They didn't expect it to work, to be honest, and it was really clunky. Right, we had a very basic website as a mailchimp email list, and it all sort of you know circulated around. And there was Rob and I in the background, like frantically making sure that all the things were getting to the right to the right place. And so the pilot, and it was the University of York agreed. So that the idea that we put together as a business model was that they would pay an annual subscription as a university to post their content onto the platform and it will be free for companies to register and we got definitely got some some inquisitive looks and some pushback about that but we felt it was important that the universities would take the process seriously and bring us the right type of opportunities and we felt that you know you don't charge people to walk into a shop but if you want to buy something like then you have to obviously transact with the you know whoever's selling you something and that was the general sort of concept and we also wanted to build a big industry community quickly and we felt that if we were charging people at the door it would take too long to sell them the concept before they'd actually interact with the the research that was in there and the university of york agreed to buy like a heavily discounted subscription from the start we didn't even know what to send them like we didn't even know how to send them an invoice or anything we had to ask someone what type of invoices to send and with that sort of validation the guy that we'd met who has been with us right the way up to just before christmas agreed to fifty thousand pounds in our business like yeah, before we properly launched it, really, and that gave us the that gave us the the money to. Well, I I yeah, I was doing a part time job, and to be honest, spending most of my time on it. And but it gave Rob the impetus to kind of quit his job, and and I quit my job at that time because we could then draw a salary and pay a developer, because neither of us are technical founders, a pay developer to build the basic version of the platform. And that was twenty. That was September twenty thirteen, and we launched the platform in January twenty fourteen.
0: Right. Also, it was a very very quick. Like development of the platform from September 2013 to January 2014. Yeah. How did you the
1: first version wasn't very good?
0: (laughs) Expectedly.
1: But it, it worked. No, yeah. The, and we met um, the guy who's our now a uh, lead developer, chief technology officer, I guess. You know, we met, he was, him and his partner were working in the back of a pet supply shop in Rotherham. I just Googled website developers, went and met them. Literally, I've still got the crayon drawings that I took over to, to put the basic website together. But he, you know, he's still now, you know, he's uh, a good friend of mine, but he's, you know, he's still working with us now and uh, and just did an amazing job of turning it around really quickly at a short deadline because we didn't have much money. And we're yeah. like, if we don't, if we spend too long building it, we'll, you know and trying to pay ourselves at the same time we're, we're not going to get to the point point. and luckily we i think we got after the york we got another one or two that agreed to pay like a six-month subscription in advance yeah. so that also gave us a small bit of revenue but yeah it was a very quick turnaround
0: yeah and so the next question which i have in the list it's about the alternative solution that uh, that were existed at the time when you started impart but i'm also curious to hear about the competition that you currently have i, I would imagine that there are other companies that are trying to connect uh, university research and industry R and D. So if you could just talk a bit more about about the whole the, the whole industry and uh, your competitors and what, in your opinion, makes Impart superior.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. At the time when we launched the platform, the only real competitors was like there was a government platform called Underscore Connect that said, you know, I think garnered a bit of a uh, mixed reputation around it sector but we got the feedback we got signing our first 10 universities was by far the most difficult part getting to like 10 12 and getting like we got the university of cambridge who came on board i think in the end of the first year or the second year and that made a huge difference to to get some more more on there but at the time we didn't really have like a there wasn't any wasn't anyone directly competing with us there were other places where you could post stuff online as a university including your own website in some some instances but it wasn't it didn't have like an active network. The, the information wasn't quality controlled as we were quality controlled it as it went into the platform. Anybody could register. So anybody with a Gmail address could go and message universities and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about your new research and innovation. And obviously that would just waste a ton of their time. And, and so they got a negative feeling that, well, we just get contacted by every Tom, Dick, and Harry wants to talk to us about our university. And we're like, well, we, that's the difference that we, you know, we're going to quality control the audience. We're going to quality control the content. Create two kind of clean data sets, I guess. And that allows us to do very effective matching between between the two audiences. Um, But there are other, you know, there were other platforms where you could post things. There are other companies that do like kind of CRM software for for universities. So if you want to track your new patent disclosures, all that part from tracking, you know, the initial disclosure to patents, patent renewals, et cetera, et cetera. There are a couple of big companies that do do that. And they do have some functionality where you can push to like a a portal, either on your own website or a, a bigger portal. But again, they're not quality controlled in terms of the audience. So the only time... So we don't usually have to do tenders at universities, but when we have done them, it's usually been a single tender. And what that means is they can't find comparable services to ours. So we've been kind of fortunate that there hasn't been lots and lots of competitors trying to do exactly the same thing as we've done. The closest one is probably another government, the government scheme, who who have told us always that, you know, oh, no, we're not trying to do the same thing as you are. It's called Comfor. But from very early days, we saw it and we felt actually you're, you're trying to replicate a lot of what we're, we're doing but it yeah it hasn't really been an issue for us you know it doesn't seem to be something our clients talk about um, talk about a lot and anything that brings and promotes university industry connectivity and they do a good job of promoting it i think is uh, is a big positive from my perspective like uh, you know the part of the, our business is about the philosophy is we're not just trying to make money in any way that we can we don't sell ads on the platform or, or anything like that it's it is about like ca- can we allow university research to impact the, the wider world and if other people are bringing attention to it then then that's a big, big positive as well. So yeah, we don't have really direct competitors, but there are some other systems out there. And we launched a new product a couple of years ago called Impart Discover. And what that allows companies to do is instead of just interacting with the content we have on the platform, they can launch a call. So they define exactly what they're looking for, what's in scope, what's out of scope, what stage of development. And it's a premium product for companies, so they pay for it and it's it's growing really much you know it's going really fast for us at 150 last year and uh, there are some competitors that's more like an open innovation portal so i guess and and there are some other companies that do uh, the same or or similar things so i have more direct competitors in that area um our niche is really focusing on universities, academic research and finding opportunities within um, the network that we've built, which is very unique. You know, universities have a dashboard that when they log into, uh, we've built an academic portal, they can log into and view all the opportunities. So it's kind of there are various different USPs which kind of sets us apart, but we have more competitors in in that side of the, the business rather than the university side.
0: Let's talk about leadership. So you started the business as a co-founder it was the two of you and now you've grown the team over 30. So we just wanted to know what has been the biggest leadership challenge for you in in from from being a co-founder and having one other person on your team to having 30 people that that, that you need to lead?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It's actually 40, I think we're 47 or 48 people 47. now. Wow. Okay. Um, you need to so update yeah, the information
0: on the website then.
1: Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> we're about to launch a new website. It should have gone live on monday but it didn't so it's going to go live this weekend so yeah there'll hopefully, be new yes. information hopefully by by next week leadership challenge yeah that's, that's a good it's a really good question and, and you go through various stages right like you go yeah. to when you get up to like Before you get to like 10 or 12 people, like, I I don't think we really experienced really any problems. It was, you know, you're so small. Everybody knows everybody. It's really clear. Like everyone's doing their job or they're not. Everyone's in the same room. you You spin your chair around. You know what everybody's doing, right? And then you go through this transition period where you get to like 15 to 20 people. And that becomes a bit more of letting go of seeing everything. You know, seeing every email that goes out, seeing every response, you know, being aware of every single touch point that's happening in the business. And you do go through this sort of uneasy feeling where you have to kind of let let go of the control over every part when you go from being very small to getting a little bit bigger. So I, I definitely found that an, an interesting transition trying to give people the autonomy and responsibility and it's something that i guess we pride ourselves in now is is trying to ensure we we try and make sure that we give our staff a you know a a good amount of autonomy in everything they do you know we don't micromanage we don't look over people's shoulders but i definitely found that uh, an interesting process to sort of start letting go of some of those things and then as you start to get bigger it's kind of it's kind of keeping everybody focused on 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 the same direction i guess you know and, and you know we've We've definitely not been brilliant at it. I don't I don't think we make some mistakes along the way, but I think we've pr- progressively we've got better. So it's, 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 you know, the overall business, what direction are we going in? What is the mode of growth everybody should be aware of? We've going in this direction. What's the product development direction? And it's very easy to get in an island with product development where, you know, Rob and I talk about it and the dev team, and then no one else really knows, or, you know, we've not been very good. I think at times at, at communicating the overall direction of product. And I hope that we're getting, getting better at that, uh, getting better at that now. And then on a, Per team basis, it's kind of giving people their, you know, they're they're giving people the responsibility to drive, you know, their teams in, in the right direction, focus their teams in particular areas, you know, set them directionally with a, you know, a list of strategies, you know, what are their KPIs, um, how do we track them and what looks good, what 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 is bad. And it takes a while to figure out what good and bad looks like. And I think we've got to a place now where all of our teams know what their, their targets are per year, whether they're soft or, you know hard metrics like sales targets for example and then you know how we track those in terms of in terms of kpis and uh, and everything so i think that yeah I don't, I don't know it's a question of leadership i suppose but yeah, keeping people on on course has been an interesting interesting challenge and particularly in the last couple of years i think when everybody goes remote like usually you're in the office a lot of the time you can kind of lead by example to a certain extent you know you go and asking teams what they're doing and how's that working okay giving a bit of advice coaching that that type of thing whereas moving remotely i think that was that was probably the most most difficult thing to try and to try and still have an element of leadership when everybody's working individually on you know remotely and everything to try and coordinate people and we tried lots of you know as i'm sure lots of companies have tried lots of different things to try and do good at that i don't i don't i'm not sat here saying we did a great job of it i think we probably could have done better but overall i think you know we came out of it you know the right, the right side, and the business. I'm not sure if that answers the leadership question very well. Feel free to ask it in a different way. If if oh I'm no, I think I'm it not uh, that I think
0: it does. At least I could, I could recognize some some teams that I've also that I've also heard from other people who have been in in similar situations, and I could definitely see that probably the biggest. And that's just an assumption on my part, and you feel free to correct me. But the biggest challenge comes at the moment when you just need to start delegating a lot more, and when more m- most of the kind of power. Of how the business is going to is going to progress falls out of your hands when there, when when there are now too many people in the business, so you can't control everyone, and you really then need to let let power go and let people be be autonomous. I think that you've solved that challenge pretty well from what it seems as the results of the business.
1: Yeah, I think giving people ownership and responsibility of it. So yeah. at, at times over the years, you'd have meetings where you'd be like, "Yeah, great, that's that's great idea. Yeah, that's what we should do. That's what we should aim for. Brilliant. Happy days." speak to you tomorrow and then now it's like actually dennis this is your responsibility this is what we think we should aim for we think your team should be the one that should own this action um going forward we think that we should you know meet tomorrow to finalize the kpis and then we're going to track them from now till this point and we'll find out if it's working if it's working we're going to track them yes. again so going from sort of having a conversation to thinking yeah that's a great idea and then in three four five weeks time two months time going okay well how is it going and everyone's like oh well you know and no one's no one's fault really. is my fault yeah. and, and Rob's fault for not not defining it clearly enough and giving people you know the ownership of, of certain things and and the responsibility of it. And actually, what I found is when you give people that, we're very fortunate to have very very good people in our, our teams. If you give people the ownership and responsibility of something, you know they that it really it, they really get going. You know it gives them the ability to show what what good looks like and that what they're doing is good. And 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 yeah, I've just found that I, I think it helps them. No, and I think at times there's yeah maybe yeah it's definitely something that comes back to, to leadership I think being able to
0: to define those things in that way and you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation the the pitching event that you went in, in New York I think you said pitch pitch fest venture fest
1: it was called yeah. venture
0: fest yes yeah uh, obviously there are a lot of early stage founders that go through that go through similar pitching competition I know one that happened just uh, just the other day here in in South Yorkshire uh, called get funding fit part of the part of the team SY project so we just wanted to I I just wanted to ask whether there whether there's anything that you would tell current business founders that are validating their idea if there's anything in particular that they they should be looking for and if that thing shows up they know that the business has potential
1: Mm. yeah that's a good question like I think you've just got to go out there and start talking to people about it right I've, I've in the early phases like I found a few people that would say you need to be very careful who you talk to like don't speak to too many people until you're ready be careful etc cetera, etc cetera. and that, i think maybe there's some 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 rationale there if you're a hyper stealth deep tech startup or something i, I don't know but but ultimately like the, the chance of someone like hearing you say something and going off and make putting all their energy into copying that idea is, is very remote i personally think so i think you've just got to start putting yourself out there right you start by speaking to people that you know friends and family but frankly they're always going to validate your idea right they you know if Good people will probe you and, and, and argue with you and disagree with you and stuff. But then you've got to go and speak to people who don't know you and people who do work in the area that you're hoping to affect. So whatever that might be, like I spoke to a guy setting up like thinking about setting up like a football coaching like app or something. I was like, Have you been to Sunday League football matches and spoken to the parents? You know, It's about like getting kids to find coaches. Oh, no. But well, I think that would be a really good idea. Go and actually speak to people who would use it. Ask them you know it's not rocket science ask them would they pay for it if it worked and etc cetera, etc cetera. you've got to go and expose yourself to the people that should have an opinion and when you actually try and sell to them when you're ready you've kind of you've got your mind around some of the common things that people would, would say back to you and i think the same thing works with pitch events so like i i mean it's not i don't personally enjoy them do you know what i mean it's not that much when just to stand on a stage in front of everybody and it's, you know, it's nerve-wracking and scary and i personally you know i tried to put a lot of time and preparation to it but it's it's it is invaluable the people that you do meet there the fact that you put yourself out there your idea you put yourself out to be criticized by people as much as you put yourself out to be praised by people i think i take my hat off to anybody who goes and stands on the stage and does does anything like that whether it's music or, or pitching or, or whatever but it's invaluable and yeah i had this experience with the the it used to be called tech north but tech nation and they were running this pitch event, and i was like i don't think i'm gonna i don't you know we're really busy at this time like we're only like 12 people or something we weren't huge you know but had lots of stuff going on i, like, I don't think so and uh, the uh, laura who, who works there who i think you connected with i'm i'm gonna forget her second name now laura she used to work at, that's right yeah she used to work at tech nation she was like chase, like I think it'd be really good for you i think you i think you should really go and yeah it was her that really got me to go and actually pitch at, right. at the event in sheffield Pitched the event in sheffield got through that event with a couple of other really good companies that got through as well and then got to pitch at like the national event in manchester and then we won that event, and that got like an all expensive paid trip to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, and a booth at like TechCrunch disrupt in London or whatever and and it was you know all all paid for and everything. I was like, you just don't know who you're going to meet at these places, and you don't know how how it's going to go and that made a big deal so raising our second you know we had the business investment, raising our like first venture capital investment was still quite small, it's like three hundred thousand pounds um was that like winning like being involved in that event being shortlisted winning at the same time yeah. as we were like raising investment made a made a big difference i think so it's all that's kind of feeling of momentum that people are, you know there's a positive feel about what you're doing and people are getting excited about it and and that sort of thing so yeah you just don't know yeah take every meeting that you can at the beginning you don't know who you're going to meet at any event so go to as many as you can and it'll be the one that you think you go at the last minute or something you'll meet the best person or You'll sit next to someone grabbing a sandwich somewhere and that'll turn out to be the best. I've got multiple examples of this where I've nearly not gone to meetings. Like we nearly didn't go to a meeting with MIT because the guy hadn't really responded to us. He wasn't sure if he put us on. We did this trip to Rob and I to the US where we tried to meet um, as many universities on the East Coast as possible. Um, And I was like, I'm just going to turn up at their office and just hope that he's still ready at the right time. And he's like, oh, hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, come on in took me through security where the Microsoft and, you know, offices are that attached to the MIT building, met him, met a couple of his other colleagues there. And we yeah, that just ended up being like the biggest, the biggest breakthrough that we had in actually getting into the U.S. university market. And yeah. we very, very nearly didn't go. We were, we were yeah. thinking about not going on the morning.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And uh, honestly, I love how relatable you are because my next question is going to, uh, if, if people haven't, not, haven't seen the, the post on your social media, for example, they still don't know what happened with Impart, but the stage that you reached and listening now to you and saying all these things, like small things, like for example, how you mentioned at the beginning, you didn't know how to send an invoice. There are found, founders of businesses out there who on podcasts and in, in media, they sound as if they have figured out everything from the start. And, and, you know, it's just when you listen to them and you feel like you can never reach that level of, of professionalism and of, and of excellence. And uh, just listening to you and you being so open about the challenges and about the fact that you didn't know everything and you learned step-by-step step is, is just really, really inspiring in my opinion. And with that in mind, my next question is about the recent acquisition that happened. You in part was acquired and congratulations once again. And yeah, thanks. And I just want to ask what's, uh, what's really going to change for impart was going to change for you and what is next uh, for the company? Mm.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and exciting times for us. So yeah, over the last probably over the last twelve months or so, Rob and I, my co-founder Rob, have been thinking about like what sort of direction that we want to go in. You know, do we want to raise another investment? And and we would got through. You know covid period where the business stayed relatively you know stable grew a little bit and our, our company product grew quite a lot but not not crazy growth and then we were coming out of that and starting to feel positive so we're starting to see growth in the business and, and in all metrics and and that sort of thing so we're pretty confident we could have raised like a um so in total so far i don't know for anyone who doesn't know we've raised about one point Three million pounds in investment in three different investments so we felt pretty confident we might be able to raise north of you know three to five million pounds maybe we've got some good contacts we've got our existing investors who were who were on board we also had a pretty good organic growth plan so and you know we didn't need money at the time you know to carry on trading and and everything else we felt like if we were you know conscientious and careful we could grow through revenue and, and get to a point that we could reach uh reach an exit and, and we were probably targeting you know two to three years time from from this point and I think our feeling was we didn't we had we have a board like we didn't really want to raising another investment in the process to do it. you know we've done it a couple of times it's if anyone's done it you're like it's not it's not easy it's not straightforward it's frankly it's not particularly enjoyable going through that and then you end up with a more more perspectives around the board table and you never quite know how that how that's going to go we've been fortunate to have a, a good bunch of board members so far and then we also got approached by A few companies, you know, multiple times over the last people talking about acquisition. So, some really big companies and some, some more medium sized companies. And that got us thinking about actually. You know what? What is it that we want to achieve? How could we do more of the same? How could we be more impactful? And then, and then the one that um, the one that really got us interested and excited was was I and meeting the CEO there, Gilles, and, and the true strategy officer there, Caroline, talking to us about yeah their business, what their ambitions were, how they felt that you know we could align our vision and mission and everything else. And that just got Rob and I really excited. And a lot of the technology that they built was kind of things that we were thinking of building as well. So, uh, but they've probably done it better, to be to be totally honest. um, and and then there's and then there's all the other things you think about like the cultural fit you know do, do we think we can work with them do they have the same sort of mindset focus philosophy etc and that that quickly became became sure that that was uh, that that was the case so so yeah and then you know you start having those conversations then it's like right well you know anyone who's been for an acquisition you know breast tax what 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 is it what what's the offer on the table and then we go through you know, that process of different offers. Obviously we got board, we've got investors, we've got people to consider, we've got ourselves to consider our, our own ambitions. Yeah, got to got to a place that we were, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know, yeah, we're, we're happy with. Um, We're really happy. I think ne- any any good negotiation comes out with everybody feeling like, you know, not skipping down the road, otherwise someone, someone's not been treated fairly. So, but well, we got to a point that we're really happy with. And, and again, the sort of the strategic cultural fit we were really excited about. And then as we go through the due diligence process, start speaking to a lot of their different technical teams product teams marketing teams etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, and then start to get more and more excited about the people that we would potentially be um, potentially be working with so so yeah and that's that ran up to just before christmas when the deal actually closed and then yeah we actually made the formal announcement yesterday i guess and and so far super positive reaction so so that's been that's been great yeah and for rob and i personally you know just a a really you know, a validation of everything that we've built, a sort of accumulation of all the different people that have worked with us in the past in our teams, and all all the people that we have working with us now. We're only as good as our team, so so it's a, it's a validation of every everybody's everybody's hard work, really.
0: Absolutely, and it's a massive it's a massive success story for as a, as a startup as a startup hub. But that doesn't happen every day that a startup gets acquired, especially in the in the academic and so industry R and D fields. And so you you already mentioned some of the support that you received from from sheffield's ecosystem in the face of the sheffield enterprise team and the tech north which uh, right now is called tech nation so i just wanted to expand on that a little bit more if you could say what's the experience been like to build a startup to be, to build a high-growth business in sheffield and how much did you tap into your local ecosystem really
1: yeah that's a, it's a good it's a good question the enterprise center at the university were, were very helpful like open door policy, you can come in and use the space. You know, you can ask us questions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's not that they had expertise in our area of business, but generally, the, the usual questions you'd have starting up a business. That was, it was useful to have somewhere to go, somewhere to speak to, and and, and that sort of thing at the beginning. Uh, to a certain extent, set up our first office, which was like free for a certain period of time. There was like a an incubator, as they called it. To be honest, it was only me in there for the first eight months, I think, on my own. But it was still a place I could go that wasn't home. It was good. So by far and away, at the beginning, the enterprise center. Sam Deakin um, and uh, a lady called Jane at the the Enterprise Centre was super super helpful, and that was and that was yeah. And then I guess Laura and 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 the whole Tech North thing after that was also was also helpful as well. Two of our investors that ended up being on on our board, one very early, one latterly, um, both from Sheffield. You know, really positive. There are business angels in and around Sheffield that are you know op- open for. The business for the right type of opportunities for sure i think having two universities in sheffield is is, is really useful for recruitment so we leveraged any scheme that we possibly could do so there were some like match funding schemes for phd graduates that we used that were really cost effective there's the santander scheme there's the rise scheme we've used all of these schemes and still and still do to a certain extent i think we are still using the rise scheme but just finding new graduates and most of the people that we've got just thinking about our management team most if not if all of the management team that we have are graduates from the university of Sheffield or, or Sheffield Hallam so we've either done PhDs or masters or, or, or undergrad degrees at Sheffield and obviously we've got a bunch of people who've done been to other universities as well and some of them have done Sheffield and other universities but but it's a, it's a testament to the quality of graduates you get and I think people do want to stick around Sheffield and I think for the area that we work in so like people who've done PhDs or scientists don't necessarily want to work in the lab, but are still passionate about science and and technology. You know, they start to wonder where, how how am I going to get into the world of work, not working at the bench in a, you know, in in a laboratory. And I think our business is kind of science communication, still being involved with university research had a big appeal and is quite unique in Sheffield. So that's definitely been, that's definitely been useful. I I used to live in London. My co-founder, Rob, still lives in London, like the price of offices and everything else is cataclysmically different. So yeah, for a for an office that we had was like a, a fifth of the size a while ago in london was like almost double the price of the office we had in sheffield at one point for a member rightly so yeah just the cost of living and the office space and everything like that is uh, has definitely been been good as well so yeah and i think it was only really the tech north event where i started to meet other founders like at the enterprise center there were some other comp from people that were coming through there and i was aware of um I was aware of a couple of others that had been kind of before me, a couple of guys who set up that company match chat or uh, uh, yeah, I, I think James Routledge, I think, who, I know he's done some mental health startup or something, something now, but I was aware of, the, there was some like, there was some like awareness that other students had set up businesses, which kind of gave a positive feeling, I think. And that's why the enterprise center felt like it was, it was brand new. They'd got this space and they're on the up and, and everything else. And I, I think, unfortunately they've kind of disbanded it now, but um, from if I'm, if I'm, if
0: I'm, actually back the enterprise team yeah in 20 january 2020 it was it was back in action and then obviously covid happened so there was a bit of a stall but yeah. uh, but but right now they're back in they're, they're back in full speed last last year they had a very successful pre pre-accelerator which they had a really nice demo day which i attended and it was it was a big success uh, so yeah they're back in action in new sheffield awesome
1: that's excellent yeah i definitely i need to get along some of those demo days like you get a real something you can't kind of um replicate and seeing people yep. with new business ideas pitching their ideas and stuff it's, it's yep. just really exciting to be around their energy um yep. so i'll definitely get along to this but that's great to hear i'm really pleased because i know maybe it was two or three years ago that there was a there was a period where they were like rolling the enterprise center back into another department and i felt like it yeah keeping it separate was was a big positive so so that's good that's good to hear yeah they're yep. definitely the i mean i did go down to the the chamber of commerce at one point and ask like, how do I write a business plan? How do I do a financial plan to raise an investment? And I found that not particularly useful. And the thing, the things that you need as a, as like a, you're starting up a new business are really basic things like, what does a set of management accounts look like? Have you got a template? And the Enterprise had one of these templates that I could use. What goes in a business plan? Like when I go and pitch an investor, what questions are they can ask me? And you know, there's some standard like, I think as a, as a founder now, I could give someone setting up a business a real good like. Entry pack of stuff that you need: a draft invoice, you know what what to send, what payment terms, you know terms and conditions, a uh, set of management accounts that would probably be pretty standard to report on. What a financial forecast should look like. So we went to and started pitching investors, and we were like, were like, "Oh yeah, so can you give us your financial forecast for the next three or five years?" And we're like, "Yeah, I guess." Or so like, "We just, but we're just guessing though, right? We're just making yeah." yeah. So then, and I, I gave I've given some talks at Sheffield Hallam where I've shown the first slide deck that we gave at the VentureFest event, and it was like. 200,000 pounds, 4 million pounds, 12 million pounds. And we were making like 10 million pounds in profit by three year three or something just completely ridiculous. And if I remember being there on the day and like, there's a, a woman in the, in the audience looking at that, just like really raising her eyebrows, squinting at it, thinking like, you guys are absolutely crazy, but well, you don't know where to start, right? You just have yeah. no idea. You know, I did, we were trying to think of all the costs that we're going to have to like pay for. And we couldn't get past like half a million pounds in salaries and six people that we thought was going to be the maximum we needed turns out you need a lot more and that sort of thing but yeah those those sort of things would be would be useful in in, in the enterprise and they did have some of that some of that stuff which was useful
0: brilliant patrick shall we move on to the five questions that i ask all my guests at the end of each podcast
1: yeah let's shoot for it
0: let's go so first is a book that you would recommend to a future founder and current founders as well is there any book that is really jumps on your mind when, when we're talking about entrepreneurship
1: Yeah. Do you know what? I I read that and I haven't read many business books. You know, I'm aware that like business leaders are kind of prolific and reading all sorts, but I sort of flick, if I'm being honest, I flicked over the Lean Startup book because everyone was talking about it at the time, but I I haven't used it religiously. I'm not trying to say it's not good or or useful or or anything like that. So I I don't think I have a particular book to recommend. Mm -hmm. I think what I would advise people to do is go and find someone who's done what you're thinking about doing before, been successful at it and bend their ear as much as possible try and build a relationship with them so you can you know learn from what they've done learn from their mistakes I think I found that I found using or trying to find mentors you know informal mentors and stuff much more useful than than any book i did read the alex ferguson one on leadership that was quite yeah that was an interesting read i don't know i guess i'm a football fan anyway but yeah that was an interesting read the alex ferguson one so yeah i'd say yeah maybe i'd recommend that one or 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 yeah just trying to find people that you can use as a as a sound
0: by the way i would recommend the alex ferguson book as well i'm a football fan myself and i'm a liverpool fan so for, mm. for me reading the alex ferguson book was a very obviously uh, obviously learning experience but it was also a painful experience because the the Man United teams in my childhood have genuinely caused me a trauma for how good they were and how <laughs> shit Liverpool Liverpool was really. But so in all, all jokes aside, Alex Ferguson is really an example of, of of a successful management spanning in three decades. Like that's that's really yeah. unheard of, especially in in the state of the game nowadays. To be able to sustain success for thirty years and just constantly innovating your team and so not being not slaving away to to a particular player or anything. So I, I think that's a very good recommendation, and it's something that hasn't been told on this podcast. So I think I think it's really good.
1: Yeah, and the thing I took away from that book was like to be simple and brief. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I think there's a tendency to like try and say too much. So when you sat with your team, like it's very easy to sit and to talk and and try and put points across. You know, and talk a lot and the, and actually. It's the short, simple messages that get that really get home to people and try and do that as much as possible. And then it's also all all the little bits of details that add up to something big. Right. It's do you do I don't know, do you remember something that someone told you or do you you know he has this thing where he'll always remember the parents and kids and you know all that sort of thing and I'm terrible at remembering names to be totally honest but it's all the little things that you actually sometimes you think about doing things that you think oh that would be good to do and then you don't actually do them and so all those little things and I think just just keeping you know his, his bits about his team talks and stuff it wasn't like in my mind, I thought maybe he's got 50 minutes at the beginning of every big game where he gives this like big, like Al Pacino-esque yeah. sort of speech. And it and it's always something really short and, and brief, which I thought just found that found that really interesting. Sometimes it's, it's more about what you don't say sometimes than what, what you do say. Absolutely. And so yeah, that was a good learning. Absolutely.
0: Um, yeah. Next question is the name. So why did you pick the name impart?
1: Yeah, it's like a play on word between innovation partnerships, like industry partnerships. We had uh, the first name we had was like called Uni IP, and then mm-hmm. I think we I think we couldn't get the URL for it or something. We also felt it was pretty generic when we started googling it. And uh, yeah, in part we sort of liked and it, it it stuck. So yeah, I don't have a great story about the name to be totally honest.
0: And moving on to the next question. So you said that you were born in you were born in Sheffield, you lived in Derbyshire. You obviously, you're back in Sheffield. You've been back for for a decade. What's a place in Sheffield that you would recommend that people should visit?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Beautiful downtown Bramall Lane is is probably a good place to, I'm a Sheffield United fan, so that's a good good place to visit if you want to go and watch some football. The Peak District, is that, I mean, is that a a place to say? Because there's so many different places you can go there, but like, and the the company that has acquired us a base in France, they were over with us uh, last week, five of them, and and I was just desperate to take them out to the Peak District, but obviously it goes dark so quickly after after, after hours, so we'll definitely be taking them out to the Peak District. Um, Other than that, I, I really like the Botanical Gardens. Like that's a really nice place to visit, and then if you start getting into like a, you know eateries and and places to go, I went to Heist Brewery last week, and the the Heist Brewery and the, and the burgers and the shuffleboard they have down there.
0: Now the next question yeah has a philosophical tone to it, and before it used to be if you had fifteen minutes with your twenty year old self what would you tell them? But now I've changed it to if you had fifteen minutes with your twenty three year old self because I'm twenty three now and I decided to be a bit uh, egotistical and get some answers for myself on this question so if you were if you had 15 minutes with your 23 year old self what would you tell him
1: mm. it's, a, it's a really it's a really interesting question that i think i would probably just say like to be patient like okay. i think i'm in my early 20s or whatever and i think now like people aren't going to have one career right you're going to have like two or three and you're going to have a, you know we're going to be working till we're like 70 or something I, I don't know what when the pension age goes up but, but you're going to have more than one career i think and i think at that age I was I guess I just got back from traveling I was very eager to kind of get on my career step and, and move on to the next thing and I think if you're working hard and, and you're open to opportunities and stuff like that like opportunities come up for sure and I think yes yeah, so I'd say probably just trying to be be patient I'm, I'm a naturally impatient person like I <laughs> I Just in every facet of my life, I guess you know, if I want to get something, I'll go on and order it or whatever. That's just 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 the way I am. But so I think patience is is definitely a virtue in in terms of the sort of the career stakes and everything else. And I guess the benefit of hindsight, you have a reassurance to tell them, look, it's 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 going to be okay. It's going to work out all right. Work hard, you know, be diligent, and good things will happen. I guess. And I think that's 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 the key thing. I've also I've tried to anybody I've worked with or interacted with in the past. Like I've seen people sometimes like burn bridges with people that they've worked with, if, you know, when you're having a bad experience or like maybe your manager's not being great. And, you know, I've had some good and some, I've not had to work lots of places, but I had some good and some really bad and and making sure that you, you keep relationships there. I think you can, you can build work relationships regardless of how the, the dynamic works. And I've I found that I found that very useful over the years to, to leave on a positive footing, wherever you've been and wherever you've worked. And I think that accumulation of positivity definitely leads to, will lead to further opportunities in the future i think so yeah probably be patient would be my, my main advice
0: yeah uh, by the way the second thing that you said actually resonated even even more the patient the patience piece did as well but this, the second part i've i've personally had uh experiences in my life where i've left on bad terms and i and i have regretted that and i've had experience where i have actually proactively seeked to end things on good terms and that has mm. paid dividends so this is this is incredibly important and uh so, And thank thank you for saying this. And my last question for is to hear one sentence about a big, hairy, and audacious goal that you have for impart from now on.
1: I think I guess I guess we're not impart anymore, is one thing. You know, we're we are impart. We're still, you know, we're owned by another another company now, which is which is kind of kind of scary, but also really really exciting. And I think the goal for us is to have a fully connected ecosystem between academia and and companies and and to provide the the necessary tools that they they need to do that so i like i like the idea that if the next um I mean, God, let's not think about the next COVID crisis or something like that. But if part could be like a facilitator of a uh, breakthrough medicine, or you know, some 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 real bit. I mean, we've had a lot of great success stories over, over the time through our platform of connecting universities and companies. Really great, but we haven't done penicillin, or or you know, the COVID vaccine. We can't argue that that came through our platform. You know, it was yeah. it was outside of it. But I love the idea of having something that we can we can point towards that's had a really big impact on on the yeah. world. A Piece of research that came out and was connected to the right person that went had a, a really big impact on the world we've had car companies producing ventilators and stuff that we've connected in the platform know, it's been um various different drug discovery therapies they take a long time to go from like inception to market so even the eight years we've been going probably isn't long enough to actually see it from inception mm. through to get into patients arms but i like that idea i, I think that uh, the, that concept of having a, a fully connected ecosystem and that we can see something go from the start it we won't really be the start because the start is actually the, the genius minds that are academics around the world that are doing the actual research. So there's always a different exception, But being able to take something from from a very early stage and see it get to you know from start to finish. And I think with Inova, we should have the, the capabilities and the tools to see that go through um, from start to finish. So I, I like the idea that, yeah, we could point towards a, a vaccine or, or something, um, something really impactful that, that has come through in part.
0: Brilliant. Well, Patrick, it was it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Yeah, no worries at all. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it.
0: Well, that was everything for today's episode. I will once again remind you to subscribe to She Valley anywhere you're listening, so you don't miss another episode. Stay tuned as the Transform SY episodes are starting next week, and come visit the next startup meet-up in Sheffield, Barnsley, Doncaster, or Rotherham. Until next time.